Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back. It's me, your host, Jessica, Absite Smackdown Podcast, and with me as always, Dr. David Kashmir. And today we have Dr. Weisman. Hey guys. Hey. Hey, Jessica, Mark, nice to see you both again. Pleasure's all mine. Well, today on the show, Jessica, like you were saying earlier, uh, Dr. Mark Weisman's with us, and we're going to talk all about resilience, self-care, and how to be the best we can when it comes to all the hours, demands, and things we do as surgical residents, emergency room residents, and residents in general and beyond into our careers. So to that end, like you said, today we have Dr. Mark Weissman. And Dr. Mark and I have worked together previously caring for critically ill intensive care unit patients. Great guy to work with. Happy to have him on the show today. And Mark's background includes a training and now an emergency room attending, trained at Drexel and Hahnemann, and now moving on to, after practicing for some time, a critical care fellowship at St. Luke's. And I know already he'll be a great addition to the team, having worked with him in El Paso with some critically ill patients. So again, Mark, nice to be with you. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me, guys. So Jessica, where do we go today? Well, I just kind of want to jump right in because it's a lot to talk about. Um, We'll touch on some other things that is interesting about Dr. Wiseman later. But so what's really fascinating to me and what gives you a unique perspective, Dr. Wiseman, is you did a surgical residency and an ER residency. So you have like this wide view of the differences between the two. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. So um, yeah, uh, if for those of you that don't know, so I actually did two years of surgery before changing my residency to emergency medicine. That story by itself, that's a whole story in and of itself. But what it did do is it gave me some perspective into the different ways that we're stressed basically as residents and the different stresses that can be on our schedule, right? So any surgical resident is obviously going to tell you that there's a considerable considerable amount of time that's required, right? So just the straight amount of time that's required. But the other things to consider, and what I actually found on the emergency medicine side, were a couple other unique challenges, which was one is what do you do when you have 12 hours of no rest, right? So in some um, critical scenarios, even whether you're a surgical resident or especially as an emergency medicine resident, we talk about being on for 12 hours straight, not being able to take a break, not being able to sit down. And then the other issue is what do we do with sleep? Because um, it's very common for uh, emergency medicine residents and attendings to have to shift between day shift and night shift. Mm -hmm. So one of the most important things that I think you find for a lot of people is it's really, really easy to lose track of um, your sleep over time. I call it basically your sleep deficit, right? So sometimes it feels like you can never catch up. Sometimes it feels like it's impossible and in many chances it is, but it's really important to pay attention to how much sleep you're getting and do your best at the end of a certain amount of time to try and catch up on that sleep to try and make yourself better. So that's one thing that you can try to do. Okay. Do you have tips for that? That's worked for you personally, maybe? Well, I found people actually for that. So people find a little bit of a different style. So I think one of the most important things is to figure out 
how your body responds to an overnight, right? So everybody in medicine is going to have to work basically a 24-hour shift, right? So you're going to be there, you're going to work overnight, and you're going to have to figure out how to go to sleep and get up to do it either the next day or that night. So I found some people do better taking a two-hour nap, getting up and then restarting the next day. Some people do better just sleeping and then waking up whenever they wake up and then going to work at a normal time. It's hard for me to say what works. There's not one thing I found that works for everybody, but you want to start paying attention to what works for you early on. Are you a person that's a napper? Can you nap easily? If you can't, then you're going to need to block your sleep schedule. If you can nap, sometimes breaking up into small naps, like naps an hour or so at a time, can actually be useful to try and catch yourself up and convince yourself you're more awake. They talk about that with your overnights anyway. That's one of the strategies they talk about just to get through a 24-hour shift is doing those 15-minute power naps to try and keep yourself awake. I have to tell you, I'm not someone who can sleep. When I have uh, 20 critical patients that I'm uh, responsible for on an overnight shift, I don't typically sleep all that well. So I usually have to make up for it the next day. Um, but that's that's just me. I'm not a napper. I wish I was. I would love to be a napper. I don't have the pressure you guys have at all, but I, I can't nap. If there's something to do, I'm not napping. What about you? The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. What about you, Dr. K? I'm terrible at all of this. Uh, I trained before it was recognized how important it was. Um, I trained before a lot of the bell commission stuff and I have a real blind spot for how tired I am. Um, What I've read about sleep and Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I found in the sleep literature that one of the first things you lose when you lack sleep is the ability to tell how sleepy you are. Mm -hmm. And that really concerned me. So I said, well, what am I going to do? And I tend to be a really pretty data oriented. So uh, what I did is um, I found a device uh, that would tell me about physiologically how tired I am. I'm just taking it off my wrist here. Um, this is called a whoop strap used by pro athletes. Uh, you use it with your phone and it tracks uh, physiologic endpoints like heart rate variable. Oh, by the way, not sponsored by whoop, nothing on here is sponsored <laughs> by whoop. This is just what I do. Okay. Um, you know, I just, just to say, I guess you got to say that stuff nowadays or else YouTube, yeah. no sponsorship. Um, yeah, but, they want to contact us though. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so myself and a team of four surgeons uh, wore these for 60 days, day and night. And uh, we tracked our heart rate variability, which is something we can talk about later on if, if Mark wants to on the podcast. But it's a physiologic measure of how rested you are. It's about based on the balance of your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. It's the minor beat-to-beat variation in your heart rate. Even if your heart is regular, it, it, it varies by a little teeny bit that you can't really see on an EKG. Anyway, this is one of the many ways. And the reason I do it is because I'm terrible at telling really how tired I am or how recovered I am. And um, the features of this is it gives you a composite number to tell you, hey, this is kind of how well rested you are. So a team of four, four, yeah, I think four other surgeons and I wore it for six days or 60 days, and we correlated it with our ability to make decisions. It turns out, and this was a little bit concerning, it didn't completely predict how well we made decisions, but how recovered we were, according to the WHOOP band, predicted how well we performed on certain cognitive tests that you can't learn. So you can't learn these tests every day. It's different. 
long answer, but the headline is, how about me? I'm terrible at it. Um, I, that's part of why I really appreciate talking with Mark today. And so I need something like this to tell me, hey, you, you probably better consider getting some rest. Again, it doesn't completely determine how good you're going to be at deciding things for patients. It does not. But for me, on a personal level, really helped me to, to tell when I should get some rest. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your Absite review. I think that's perfect. And I think we do, you know, we talk about it in the emergency department and or we focus on accidents. One of the things they talk about pretty, really actually, and one of my friends was actually in the process of doing um, a study on it, in fact, was, you know, cognitive impairment and your um, driving impairment when it comes to sleep deprivation. And one of the first things that, that goes is your cognition and your ability to make sound and, and um, good decisions. And you can think that's obviously going to harm you at home when you're driving, but obviously that's what all you're doing when you're practicing medicine, right? And so if you want to be good at your job and you want to be a good doctor and be the best physician you can be, being aware of your fatigue and what your fatigue is is important. And I think what you talk about is important because it's very individual, right? I'm jealous of some of those people who can, you know, or at least seem like they can go on no, uh, no sleep for days and days and are fine. Everyone's built a little bit differently. So to be able to track and monitor yourself and be able to make those decisions, especially based on uh, some uh, numerics, would, is extraordinarily useful. Mark, I'm really curious to learn from you. One of the things you do probably more than I do is flip from daytime work to nighttime work and vice versa. What kinds of strategies do you have to help flipping? It's something I'm really bad at and I'm interested in learning from you. How do you go from days to nights? What kinds of things do you do to make that happen? Um, I think one of the most important things is, and most ER physicians is, it's really being able to sleep during the day and be able to make that transition. And so having a really good sleep routine during the day, blackout curtains, earplugs, um, you know, a book that you're going to read, you have to be really, it's really important to have really, really good sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's not going to work. Again, uh, people have to do it a little bit differently. One of the things I typically have to do is I have to keep myself up. Right. So if I know that I'm working a, a night shift, some people will nap before a night shift. Mm -hmm. I know that if I nap before a night shift, I won't fall asleep the day afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I will usually try to stay up for 24 hours to reset my clock. Now, one of the other big techniques that I actually learned, one of the things that I try. So I actually, in addition to swapping from days to nights, I've been flying all over the country. And so one of the techniques I use to try and set my morning time is fasting, actually. So one of the things you can do is one of the rumors out there and something I've tried that's worked for me is your body likes to set your morning time to be basically after after you fasted for 16 hours. So the time, whenever you eat, after you haven't eaten for 16 hours, your body sort of decides this is the morning. So what I'll try to do typically is I'll basically fast, not eat, treat as, have a dinner, not eat for whatever time. And then whenever I'm gonna decide is morning, that's when I'll break my fast. That's when I'll have breakfast to reset my clock and get my circadian rhythm going. Mm. That's interesting. It's it's a new technique uh, that I've heard uh, learned about, and that's part of why I do this. I hear new things all the time. I think the sleep hygiene you talk about is key. Uh, some people say blue blocking glasses 
to get rid of blue light from devices before you go to bed, trying not to use those devices, making a room that doesn't have a TV in it uh, as a bedroom. Uh, the, the blackout curtains you mentioned are fantastic. So I think those are really valuable techniques. I like the white noise app on my phone. I think that one. That one's really important, especially if you're traveling or you have uh, uh, noisy roommates, because <laughs> sometimes uh, it can be able to drown out the background is really important during the day. Yeah. Well, or if you're staying in hotels too, because during the day it's so busy. With Absolutely. Doors going down. I don't know how anyone sleeps in hotels. I can't even at night. <laughs> Well, although, and I think Mark and you, Jessica, bring up something really important also, unanticipated sleep disturbances. Mm -hmm. You know, Mark talked about having a blocked time for sleep. And you talked about something key, which is parts of the environment you can't control. Now, of course, the, the resident staff won't be uh, often in a hotel or anything, unless it's maybe the night before their boards, or they're at an away rotation, and they're in a place that they don't know what time the cleaning service shows up or anything like that. So a couple other things that I'll share uh, that you guys have brought up is how to control things in the sleep environment. It's difficult. You're not going to have blackout curtains unless you're at home often. Um, I found sleep masks to be useful. Uh, there's a Manta sleep mask, it's called. Um, I'll ask you guys maybe just to put some links at the bottom, uh, but different things that make it comfortable and can try to bring that environment anywhere. And as a resident, I kind of thought, I don't need any of this stuff. And maybe it's because I was younger. I don't know. But as I went along, uh, like Mark said, uh, those elements are key. And I found them to be more key as I went along. So sleep mask, earplugs, if you're not on call to have to hear a pager or a cell phone, and controlling as much as you can of your environment for having a sleep routine uh, before you go to bed and sleep hygiene seems to be key. I, I agree. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Yeah, I don't think these younger generations are as much about toughing it out like some of you older people are. I think they're all about the self-care. They're going to get the massage. They're going <laughs> to wear the eye mask. They're going to do whatever. They don't care. Just gonna take care of themselves. Right. I think it's I a difference uh, now versus then. No offense, Dr. K. It may just be that they're smarter now and better, which is the whole point. <laughs> Maybe toughing it out like we did. I didn't learn any of these things, by the way, mm -hmm. until uh, when I was done. We had just started to talk about the 80 hours. They were just starting up when I finished. Well, I think it was unspoken. You didn't like, you just had to be tough. You just had to tough it out. Like no one talked about the negative side effects of working like that or doing that. It, it wasn't something people talked about. It was just not okay. Now we talk about everything. That's the world today. We talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> bad thing. Well, yeah, I think the most recent study said that the flopping from day shift to night shift has the same health effects as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day what we do. So does the health effects are significant. So it's things that you have to pay attention to. And as you said, in order to take care of patients, you got to keep yourself healthy first. You know, you have to help, your, help, your, help yourself before you can help others. Yeah. Well said. Exactly. That's a good well point. Said. Well, I think a lot of the points that you guys have both brought up are a key again about sleep environment, different sleep techniques. They're super valuable. And um, one of the other things that we typically do on the podcast, Dr. Mark and Jessica, and of course, all our listeners out there, 
is we try to do some clinical scenario uh, that relates uh, to the absite directly or otherwise. So today, for that clinical scenario, as we segue into it, we don't have a great one about sleep. Of course, we all know in the intensive care unit, patients who lose their sleep-wake cycles often have significant issues and uh, risks for fall and other issues with that. And there are other issues we see in the intensive care unit every day. So as we talked about this, we thought of what are some everyday issues we face as uh, surgeons in the intensive care unit and beyond that overlap with things like our ER colleagues, like Dr. Mark, uh, mm -hmm. face every day. And so that's why that in addition to sleep maintenance in this podcast, where we also uh, have a clinical scenario. And, and Mark, if you don't mind, Dr. Weissman, uh, let's talk briefly about a 62-year-old patient who comes to the emergency department with you, he probably used to be pretty well rested, but the <laughs> sepsis you've diagnosed him with uh, really has, um, it's really thrown him for a loop. Uh, he really does have some confusion and mental status changes. And you've been trying to resuscitate him to endpoints, but sure enough, Dr. Weissman, that Foley catheter you guys placed uh, really isn't putting much out. He's put out maybe 10 milliliters per hour for you guys in the last uh, two to three hours you've had him in the ER while you've been really trying to get him upstairs to the intensive care unit. But they just say, oh, we're just so busy. We can't take him up here yet. Uh, and uh, how do you all choose in the ER to approach this, this type of gentleman's low urine output? Well, uh, you're already giving me some optimistic uh, ideas that I've been able to and to have the, <laughs> the staffing and the ability to watch this guy's urine output so closely. So, uh, <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> one of the challenges in the emergency department um, and one of the differences, and I can say, you know, the interesting things working in both departments is in the emergency department, I really get a snapshot of somebody as they come in and it's very difficult to look at somebody over time and get the spectrum, which is what you really get to do in the ICU and think of somebody more on a long-term spectrum and pros and cons to that. You know, part of the reason I'm going into the critical care aspect is I like, you know, I, you know, we want to be able to have that longevity, but an individual comes in, you know, most of the time the information I have, they walk in is they're confused. They have a fever, their heart rates up and they haven't made any urine for me. Right. So coming in and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm pretty sure that this person is septic. Now, in the emergency department, our criteria, our goals are to get somebody resuscitated as quickly as possible. Obviously, with the new septic guidelines that have come out, um, everybody's pushing to make sure everything's done within an hour. So the antibiotics and resuscitation is really early on. And really, that's part of what we're trying to um, suss out early on as an, as an emergency medicine physician and someone looking at a critically ill uh, person. And that's why even getting when you want to figure out when someone comes in early on and they're saying, well, they're not making any urine, you want to find out why. So, you know, if this person doesn't have a Foley in, which it sounds like the case you gave me, they did, then they're going to get one, right? We're going to see, make sure that there's no evidence of obstruction. So we have a lot of, you know, older gentlemen, 60-year-old gentlemen who are going to have prostatitis, who are going to have urinary tract infections, are going to have other uh, benign prosthetic hypertrophy, they're going to have other reasons why they can have obstruction. So you want to make sure there's no evidence of outlet obstruction. And then once that has been determined, then we're moving towards our typical resuscitation. So for us, right, it's going to be um, usually uh, two liters per hour. It's uh, 20 cc's per kg. 
I usually move up to 30 cc's per kg. Um, we still do normal saline most of the time because um, usually that's what's easy what we have in the emergency department. But most of us are actually moving towards LR, feeling it's a little bit of better of a resuscitative fluid when it comes to this, um, if we're suspecting someone's septic. And then again, hopefully when our labs come back, we're looking at obviously our creatinine determined is this acute renal failure? Is this, is this truly sepsis? Is it, is it because of the lactic sept or is the person just hypovolemic, right? So these are all the early steps in resuscitation that we're attempting to make. Well, that's really well said. And I think you've already started to contrast some of the important differences between what uh, you need to do in the emergency department and what the ICU team does later. Uh, what I mean by that is there's a ton of uncertainty in the emergency department. These patients come to you much more undifferentiated than when they finally come to us. So one of the things I find just uh, kind of at a cultural level when the ER is sort of criticized, it's easy to forget that you have, you know, three heart attacks down the hall, you have a lot of uncertainty in this patient, incomplete history, things that get better as we get along the way. So what I tend to find is, you know, as you said, septic patient now with a Foley, well resuscitated or on his way to that, they land in the unit. And then we get the history, well, they're on Lasix at home, they have chronic renal disease that maybe you did or didn't know. And what we get to deal with is the aftermath. And then it gets to be, Maybe their urine output's better for a day or so, but then the next day it's low again. And it kind of keeps going like this, uh, Dr. Mark. And I think you'll find in your critical care fellowship, your surgical critical care fellowship you're going to do, we end up with a situation days later where they're oliguric and now it's not so clear. We thought they were pretty well resuscitated. We thought their CVP was okay. We thought other endpoints we used are better. And now we're stuck as you and I were often in uh, the uh, COVID uh, intensive care units in El Paso, where we work together, we're stuck. And those kinds of things, you know, just come up all the time. And I wanted to share with the staff out there, two of the things we tend to use are the fractional excretion of urea and the fractional excretion of sodium. Now, everyone remembers the fractional excretion of sodium can't be used for patients who have received, received diuretics, thiazide diuretics within the previous, you know, 24, 48, even 72 hours. And then we use a fractional excretion of urea. Fractional excretion of sodium, can't use in the presence of those diuretics. Um, the one that gets talked about is the fractional excretion of sodium. If it's less than one pre-renal, if it's greater than two intra-renal. And fractional excretion of urea, less than 30 pre-renal, greater than 30 uh, post-renal or intra. So I wanted to share the, this interesting difference in approaches. And the last thing that I'll share as we talk about it is a, a formula that helps out, which is, Jessica, you may find this funny, it's UP over UP. So the numerator, uh, so you don't have to remember, oh, flip it and where's the urine? A simple way to remember it, we may show it in the links beneath. Um, U divided by P is the numerator of the fraction. And that's the fractional excretion of whatever, sodium, urea, you know, BUN uh, versus uh, urine urea versus plasma urea. That's the numerator, U divided by P. The denominator is also U divided by P, but it's creatinine. So it's urine creatinine divided by plasma creatinine. So the bottom line is an easy way to remember this equation for the fractional excretion of anything is UP over UP. Uh, U divided by P in the numerator and U divided by P in the denominator. The numerator is the sodium or urea and the denominator is the creatinine. So we'll get our urine lights. And I think that highlights the difference, uh, Mark, really well between what you all face in the ER with uncertainty and trying to resuscitate, and what we end up with lingering days later 
in the intensive care unit where we say, oh gosh, you know, now we have all the perfect history, but where is this guy now? Is this his intrinsic renal disease that's kind of getting us? How much volume does he really need now? And, and these kinds of things. So I think it's an important difference. Um, one of the other things I wanted to mention is these calls in the middle of the night that disturb sleep. They make me think often about resilience and sleep. Hey, so-and-so has a low urine output. You're called for in the middle of the night. And I think, Mark, having you with us today is, the, uh, is one of the kind of experts from experience on uh, sleep and sleep management is, is key. And I know you even put a book out about how to survive first year medical school. And as we close out here, Jessica, if it's okay with you, I was curious, Mark, if you had any comments based on uh, your book that I know is coming out soon for not just the resident staff that watch, but medical students and beyond, because I think this starts early, this type of making sure you're okay starts early, even as early as medical school. So from your book and your knowledge, any uh, thoughts on how we can do that, even as medical students, where all this begins? Right. I think the, the habits, I think everybody who's gone through medical school and gone to this road knows that habits start early and start in the beginning. And you need to develop all the habits that you're going to carry, that are going to carry you through the rest of your career as early as you can. It's never too early to start. It's never too late to start. Even if you haven't done these things, if you haven't, like maybe you're not as disciplined, or maybe you haven't done these things, developing habits that you are studying on a schedule, sleeping on a schedule, and even enjoying yourself on a schedule and doing the things that help you break down that stress and make it easier to go to work, doing all those things, there's no better time to start than now. And it's gonna carry you through those habits. You're gonna thank yourself later that you developed those habits early on. Those are awesome hints. And we are going to talk more about this. Dr. David kind of gave away a little bit of surprise about the upcoming book and when we're going to do it. So we are going to have Dr. Weissman back on when we do release that book. Um, and we're shooting for summertime. Is that correct? Dr. Yeah, so far, uh, what I've heard and seen of it, it's awesome. Uh, Mark shared it with me early on and I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a big help <laughs> medical students to kind of build habits early. And I, I don't think, you know, like you said, Jessica, I think you and the team, are pretty far along with it. I hope to see it soon myself, and I'm sure I'll be giving it to any uh, young medical students I know, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and of course, like I said, we'll have you back on when we do the release. I think right now, um, what we've discussed before, Dr. Wiseman is shooting for summertime, so before the next year starts for everybody, and it's, it's yeah. exciting. And so, again, everybody, thanks for tuning in today. Thank you, Dr. K. Thank you, Dr. Wiseman. And again, remember, hashtag, Upside Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at AbsightSmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.